South Africa has been the influences of covenant theology, reformed theology. That which sprinkles babies, tells people when they're saved, when they're not. That which gives an artificial sense of security. That which has resulted in all kinds of things. It's not only happened in South Africa, it's happened in the American South, it's happened in Northern Ireland, but it certainly has happened here. The subject of Calvinism is not our focus this weekend, but it does relate. If you've not read this book or seen this video by Dave Hunt, I would strongly recommend What Love Is This? Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. Also, there's a video, condensed video version of it. I would solidly recommend these for people who have not seen them. Whether you are a Calvinist or not, the influences of Calvinism in this society are such that every truly saved Christians should realize why the church in South Africa has been the way it has been and why it's the way it is. Let's talk about two things in this session. One is consciousness after death. Consciousness after death. And the other is the most difficult passage in the New Testament concerning death that has led to so much misunderstanding. Turn with me, please, to look at this issue of consciousness after death. Turn with me to the Gospel of St. Luke, please. Chapter 16. Verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now the rich man's problem was not that he was rich. The problem was that he was rich and didn't care about the poor. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being tor in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And in addition, all this, between us and you there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and none that may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to the Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, well, this has a specific meaning to Jews. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me also. The reason Orthodox Jews reject Jesus is because they really reject Moses and the prophets. If they really believe the Old Testament, they know he's the Messiah. But that is not our focus now. 
Death is separation. It is not cessation. It is separation. It is not cessation. There is not a cessation of consciousness. There is not a cessation of communication. There is not a cessation of activity. It is not a cessation. There was consciousness. There was communication. There was activity. There was emotion. There was sorrow. There was joy. Both Lazarus and the rich man remained conscious and experienced things. They experienced things in their consciousness, the soul. Consciousness does not cease. Death is not a cessation of consciousness. It is not a cessation of emotion. It is not a cessation of intellect. It is not a cessation of communication. It is not a cessation of any of those things. Now before we go any further, I want to clarify two things. It is true he is the God of the living. That we can talk to Jesus and our loved ones who died in Christ can talk to Jesus. But you cannot, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate you can send them a message to Jesus. You can know that Jesus said they're alright. That's all. Jesus is the intermediary between God and man. He's not the intermediary between us and the dead. That would make him a medium. He's not a spirit medium. He's the intermediary between God and man. Now there is an indirect line of communication. You can talk to somebody that they can talk to, but that's all. You cannot send messages through Christ just so there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate you can send a message through Christ. Although we all want in spirit. Secondly, I was asked about cremation. The Bible does not make a big deal about funerals. As far as God's concerned, a funeral is a baptism. Some of the early Christians were burned alive. They used them as lampposts to illuminate the streets of Ephesus. The problems that some people have with cremation are as follows. One, in many cultures, it has a pagan association. Two, it has a psychological association with burning in hell. Three, the scriptures generally speak of burial and Jesus was buried. Hence, we should fall in line with that way of thinking. In principle, there is nothing in the Bible that would say cremation is wrong. Nothing. I would never speak negatively of anybody who was cremated. However, I am partial to those who, for the aforementioned reasons, if possible, favor burial. Now I realize there are public health issues. In some places like Hong Kong, there are space issues. <laughs> there are reasons people get cremated. Practical reasons. Again, I am in no way speaking in any condescending way about those who feel it's okay to do it. On the full perspective of what I see in Scripture, my own preference would be for burial, but I would not be dogmatic about it. The Bible does not make a big deal about funerals. It makes a big deal about baptism. That's your funeral. Consciousness does not end. Communication does not end. 
Now there is a difference between what happens in Luke 16 and what happens now. Simply because Jesus has come, died, and come back again to death. In order to understand Luke 16, we have to understand 1 Peter 3. And to understand 1 Peter 3, we have to understand Luke 16. 1 Peter chapter 3 is the most troublesome passage of Scripture in the New Testament concerning death and the afterlife. And there are at least five major problems associated with misunderstanding this passage. Let's begin, turn with me please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, which of course mitigates directly against the Roman Catholic lie of the Mass. The just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely to the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from your flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This passage of scripture has led to several, several serious misunderstandings. Several very serious misunderstandings. The first understanding, there's a second chance for unrepentant sinners. Second, that there was a special grace to anti-Diluvian sinners not available to anybody else people from the time of Noah before the flood. Third, baptismal regeneration. Meaning, baptism saves. This is called Sacramentalism or sacramental soteriology, but that's not important. That's the third. The third danger. The fourth error that stems from this or misunderstanding this is by those who read the King James Bible and misunderstand it. 
Jesus went to hell. This is the Branham, Copeland, Macaulay, Rama, Joyce Meyer, Satan thing. In the intertestamental period between Malachi and John the Baptist, as we pointed out last night, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, and apocryphal books were written, like Maccabees and Enoch, where concepts known to the Jews in Hebrew were translated into what was broadly their Greek equivalent. Sheol. Sometimes a metaphor for hell, but Sheol is actually simply the nether world where you go when you die. Translated into Greek, Hades. Then you have Gehenna. Gehenna was the rubbish tip outside of the refuse gate of Jerusalem. If you'll be with us in Israel next month, we will literally bring you to Gehenna. Welcome to hell. And it looks like it. It's an Arab Muslim village. It was the rubbish pit that burned continually, but it was much worse than that. Where the Tyropean Valley articulated with the Kidron Valley, forming the Valley of Gehenom, where they burned the Jewish babies and sacrificed for Molech in the backslidden days of Judah. It was at the foot of the Mount of Evil Council. Gehenna. Gehenom. Place of torment. Jesus uses it as a metaphor for a place of torment. Now again, look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, or Lazarus and the rich man. Now the rich man is begging Lazarus to help him. But it's impossible for Lazarus to help him, even if he wanted to, because of the chasm. In a sense, Dante Aguilieri, who wrote the Divine Comedy, understood this. The same is there are degrees of eternal reward in heaven. There are degrees of condemnation in eternal hell. Lord have mercy. Okay. The nature of the torment someone will suffer eternally is in some way, if not in proportion, at least in correspondence to what they did or didn't do when they were alive. Gehenna equals hell. This, the uncrossable chasm, this is the place of the Avot, the fathers. Bosom of Abraham. 
This is what a rich man wants. This was a place of torment. The only way to go to heaven is through the blood of Jesus. Before Jesus came, those persons who died faithful to God under the law were gathered to their fathers. They were gathered to the avot, to the bosom of Abraham, where they were confined, not in torment, but in consolation, yet nonetheless confined. Waiting for the seed of Abraham to come. When Jesus did come, he descends not into hell, but into Hades. And he reveals himself to those who died faithful to God before he came. Making it possible now to finally and totally fulfill freeing the captives. Now they can go to heaven. He goes not to hell, but simply to Hades. The King James Bible is not the original Bible. It is a translation of a translation. So what they will say is, Jesus went to hell. If you don't know, most people in Elijah do know. There was a cult, or is a cult, called Christian Science, which is neither Christian nor scientific. Founded by Mary Baker Eddy, who was influenced by various occultists, people with familiar spirits. She drew on these people's ideas and their demonic revelation and formulated Christian Science. Christian Science says... Old age is an illusion. Illness is an illusion. And death is an illusion. And of course, Mary Baker Eddy first fell victim to the illusion of old age. Then she fell victim to the illusion of illness. And the last, voila la grande illusion. <laughs> There was a hyper-Pentecostal heretic who prophesied the trinity is of the devil, thus saith the Lord. It's actually recorded. I heard the recording of William Brenham. Brenham inspired other people, but he himself, along with someone called E.W. Kenyon, took on these doctrines of Christian science. It's an illusion. The whole thing, my body's lying to me. The whole TB Joshua thing, it's also an illusion. Don't have the headache, your body's lying to you. This is Christian science. 
completely a cope. It tries to be the mind of a matter thing, but it doesn't work. What these people following Kenyon came to say from Kenyon, it began with Kenneth Hagin, who died a year ago and no longer believes this stuff. <laughs> and his clones like Copeland and Macaulay and Joyce Meyer in the first edition of her first book. She said, unless you believe Jesus went to hell, you can't go to heaven. That's Joyce Meyer. One of these days he's going to shake her head and those earrings are going to knock a teeth down her throat. But anyway. <laughs> they got this idea that Jesus died spiritually, which is true. Except what they mean by it is not what the Bible means by it. They think he went to hell. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. They say no. Satan got the victory on the cross. I'm Copeland saying it on TV. When Jesus died, it was not finished. He went to hell. And he was tortured three days and three nights by Satan. And because he who knew no sin became sin, he became of one nature with Satan. Now the Bible says. Jesus is of one nature, homeostasis, with the Father. So you're telling me he became one nature with Satan in hell? And after being tortured three days and three nights in hell, Jesus Christ was born again. And rose from the dead. Which is what prompted Copeland to say he could have died for our sins instead of Jesus Christ, as he's born again. Now, as you've heard me point out a number of times, they don't see the cross the way the Bible teaches it. Because the cross of Jesus is not their view of the gospel, neither is the cross of Jesus their view of the Christian life. Instead of pick up your cross and follow me, if you're a king's kid, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. We got another Jesus, another gospel. There's nothing Christian about Raymond or Macaulay or Copeland. There's nothing Christian. There is nothing biblically Christian about those people. And their beliefs. Any true Christian needs to come away from it. He did not go to hell, he went to Hades. But they just take your King James. And when the King James, when the Greek says Hades, they translated hell, that means he went to hell. I question, <laughs> forget about Greek, I, I wonder if some of these people can even read English, but that's what they're basically doing. Jesus went to Hades. He went to the place of the fathers and revealed himself. That is what he did when he died. He went to Isaiah and to Ruth and so forth. Now, that's this one. It's the Copeland, Hagen, Macaulay lie of Satan. Let's look at this one baptismal regeneration. Because it says, baptism saves you. This is very important to Roman Catholicism because they believe salvation comes by the ritual. However, their view of baptism is ritualistic. 
turn with me, please, to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. The Bible does not separate salvation and baptism because you do not separate death and burial. As soon as somebody is truly born again, they should get baptized as quick as reasonably possible. It is part and partial of accepting the Lord is burying the corpse of the old creation and testifying to the newness of life by coming out of the water. The Lord suffers for baptized believers. The Roman church says the ritual saves. Baptism washes away your sin. They are taking an Old Testament view of oblation. You can rinse off dust and dirt, but they're going to get dirty again. The Bible talks about Christ washing his bride, the church, with the water of the word. The rinsing has to do with the word in the new covenant, not with the ritual. It cannot possibly be washing away one's sin. Why? Because the text says so. Let's read it again. Verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can an infant appeal to God for a good conscience? How can somebody still living immorally, somebody still getting drunk or sleeping around, have a good conscience? Baptism does not wash away sin. The blood of Jesus washes away sin. Baptism buries the corpse of sin. Then there is the error that those who were there around the time of Noah have a special grace. That they were rebellious, but now when Jesus comes, they have some way to have a chance that other people have never had at any time in history before or since. <laughs> doesn't seem too logical. Let's understand what it's saying. When you look at the entire text in its context, what it is doing is that it is relating the flood of Noah to baptism. The same as there were people then who were saved through the water. That is the type of what will happen in Christ. You're saved through the water. The wickedness in the day of Noah was so wicked that it is a picture of what the last days would be like. This brings us to the notion 
that there is some second chance for those who die. Because Jesus went to Terusos. Get the word kerygma. Preach to them. But preach what? We get the word kerygma, gospel from it. But those faithful saints already believed the gospel in part through the types. Moses, Abraham, they understood part of the gospel. We're told in Hebrews. How did Moses know about Christ? How did Abraham? Putting your son on the altar and getting him back was a picture of the gospel. The Passover lamb, the picture of the gospel, they had the shadow. We talked about this on the Hebrew 11 page. What they had the shadow of, now they would get the substance of. The word in Greek, or the term in Greek, Thano, death, Thanothesis means Sarki. Sarks is the word for flesh. Thanothesis means Sarkis. It means put to death in the flesh. The next term is Zoothesis. Thanos, death, zoo, life. Get the word zoo, zoology. Zoothesis. De. Numati. Zoothesis. De Numati made alive in spirit. This is not the Holy Spirit, because there's no definite article. And in Greek, it is the dative case. It can't be the Holy Spirit. Their spirits are made alive. Because of what happened to Jesus, he was made alive in spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, please. Therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives he led captive, a host of captives. When he ascended on high, people freed. Dies in the flesh to give life to the spirit. Gives life to the spirit. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible that would indicate sinners have a second chance. This he did when he died rose and ascended. The idea that sinners have a second chance is absolute madness. There is nothing, nothing at all that would indicate there is any second chance for sinners once they die. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord 
while he may still be found. But there are these four major errors that stem from misunderstanding this passage. He did not go to hell. He went to Hades. Baptism saves in the sense of what baptism means. Not a ritual, but a burial of the old creation and a resurrection to newness of life in Jesus. There is no special grace to the people around the time of Noah that we didn't have. It simply means there were people saved then and there's people saved now through the water. No second chance for sinners. That is the most complicated passage in the New Testament that has led to the most error and misunderstanding about the subject of death. Part of the complication comes because you're putting Hebrew concepts into the Greek language. And you've got people who don't know anything saying crazy things. Let's continue. The origin of death. Death's origin. God foreknew it would happen, but its origin. We have three different kinds of death in the Bible. Three kinds of death. Physical. Spiritual. And eternal. The origin of all three is sin. Jehovah in chapter 2 of Genesis verse 16 and 17, God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Continues. The soul that sinneth shall die, Ezekiel 18, 4. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as an Adam all die and Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. You've got physical, spiritual, and eternal. That's the origin of all three is sin. But now let's look at the meaning of death. As we pointed out, it is not a cessation of consciousness. What death is, separation. The key word, separation. In physical death, in physical death, the material part of man is separated from the immaterial part. As it says in James 2.26 once more, give up the ghost. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. In physical death, the immaterial part of man becomes separated 
from the material part of man or woman. Okay? Physical death is specifically a consequence of sin. Genesis 3.19, Numbers 27.3, Psalm 90, verses 7-10, to 10, Romans chapter 5, verses 12-21, to 21, 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22. God gives five words in Genesis that are repeated uh, as an example of, the, of, of, of sin. And you always see these in Genesis, with the, in Genesis I'm sorry, Genesis 5, the words, in Genesis chapter 5 these words are repeated. And he died. They are repeated over and over again, and he died except for Enoch. Enoch, the first man who was raptured. For the believer, however, physical death is no longer viewed as punishment. It is a consequence of sin, but it is no longer viewed in the punitive sense. It's viewed, rather, as a way of entering into heaven. The Bible describes, the, the death, again, the death of a believer as sleeping. Mark 5, 39, 1 Corinthians 4, 13. When the Bible uses the term sleep in reference to death, it's not teaching soul sleep as the Seventh-day Adventists believe. It's not teaching that. What it's teaching is the analogy between death and physical sleep. There is a temporary cessation of physical activity, but not spirit or soul activity. With physical death, there is a temporary cessation of physical activity. Same as when you go to sleep. There is a temporary cessation, as it were, of physical activity. Selfish to metabolize it. But there's not a cessation of spiritual or of psychological activity. It's a temporary cessation. The mind keeps operating. Other aspects of the material part of man, vital organs, continue to operate. Physical sleep is a temporary suspension of physical activity until the body wakes up. For a believer, this is no longer seen as punitive. When he wakes up, it will be the resurrection. The remedy for physical death is a physical, literal resurrection. If there is one thing, and there's more than one thing, but if there is one thing, apart from the denial of the deity of Christ, that proves Jehovah's Witness is a big lie, it's that they don't believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus. Physical death is literal and, and material. So, resurrection must be literal and material. The remedy for physical death will be physical resurrection. But then we have spiritual death. Not to be confused with the Copeland-Hagen stuff. Spiritual death is separation from God. Matthew 8.22 John 5.24 John 8.51 Ephesians 2.1, etc. 1 Timothy 5, James 5.20 Spiritual death, like physical death, is also a consequence of sin, where God warned that they would surely die. And Adam, people are born spiritually dead, which is why people must be born again. 
miracle, death is remedied by physical resurrection. The remedy for spiritual death is quickening, being made alive by faith in Christ. Here is a major place where Calvinism becomes completely false. Biblically, this quickening process happens. When God convicts someone of sin by the Holy Spirit, draws them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Unsaved people do not have a free will. They're in bondage to sin. They must sin. Their will is not really free. However, when God quickens them, a conviction of the Holy Spirit takes place. This term is called an eclinctic. What it means is, God puts a measure of life into that person, like he would revive a corpse. Once that measure of life is put into that person, the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin and draws them to Christ. They are able to make a choice. God gives them the power by putting a measure of life into them. Restoring to a microcosmic degree the choice Adam had. You're dead. I'm going to revive you. Just resuscitate you so you can make a choice. And I will give you the power to make that choice and the desire to make that choice but now you must make that choice Calvinism denies this what Calvinism says is regeneration precedes faith <laughs> first God saves you then you believe that is what Calvinism actually teaches you're elect, God quickens you, He gives you life, then you get faith to believe. Because you've been rege regeneration precedes faith. No, no, no. Regeneration follows faith. Regeneration follows faith. But how can someone who's spiritually dead choose Christ? They can't. God has to quicken them. Adam was morally neutral. He was neither fallen, nor had he eaten of the tree of life. The state people are in, when they're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit to accept Jesus, is akin to Adam's state. Although they've fallen and they've sinned, God and they're dead through sin spiritually, God has quickened them, making it possible for them to make a choice whether they will remain dead in the first Adam or alive in the second. They must then choose. God has made it possible for them to choose. The analogy I always use is someone swimming the English Channel. They head out from France and try to make it to the White Cliffs of Dover in England. But a storm comes and they begin drowning halfway across. 
A helicopter appears, a Jewish guy sticks his face out the helicopter and he has a beard and he throws them a life preserver. Jesus save me. You realize you can't save yourself? I have to save you, yes. Put this on. Throws them a life jacket, they put it on. What do I do now, Jesus? Keep swimming. Work for your salvation? No, he threw you the life jacket. Work out your salvation, put it into operation. But you've got to make the choice to put it on and swim. Unsaved people cannot make that choice. They have to be quickened, convicted, given that choice. Another way to understand this is the story of Lazarus. He's in the tomb. Jesus says, roll away the stone. When you tell someone the gospel, when you evangelize, when you give someone a tract, all you are doing is rolling away the stone. You are making it possible for them to hear the voice of Christ. That's all. Then Jesus says, come forth. Only the Son of Man can call that which is dead unto life. But then Jesus says, you unbind him. That's discipleship. <laughs> People come out of the tomb, stinking tomb this world is, bound to all kinds of things. They need discipleship. They need to be set free of these things. We can roll away the stone. We can unbind them. But only Jesus can call the dead to life. Okay. My sheep hear my voice. You can witness to people all you want. Until they hear the voice of Jesus, they won't get saved. When somebody gets saved, it's not because they heard our voice. It's because they heard the voice of Christ. Okay? But they have to respond to it. This idea that regeneration precedes faith is ridiculous. He puts a measure of life back into somebody so they can make that choice they couldn't make otherwise. But then they must choose the same as Adam had to choose. Let's continue. So, spiritual death is separation from God. The natural man may not feel spiritually dead. He may not feel separated from God, but he is. Just like a physical corpse cannot feel that it's dead, it has no feeling. In the same way, a natural man cannot feel separated from God. Can a corpse feel dead? No. Well, an unsaved person can't feel unsaved until God convicts him with his spirit. Okay? Simple. Stoyanus. When an unsaved person feels spiritual, one of two things are happening. Either the Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin and drawing them to Christ, or they're being deceived, either demonically or by themselves, or some other person. In some way they're being deceived, usually demonically. If they have a spiritual experience and it's not pointing to Christ, it is demonic. It is demonic. Let's continue. The third kind of death is eternal death. Eternal death is known as the second death. The second death is the lake of fire. If you come with us to Israel, we bring the people to Gensarine, where Jesus cast the demons into the swine, and the swine go into the lake. Cast not your pearls before swine, lest they trample them. People who mock the gospel, who reject the gospel in a mocking way, are called pigs. If people mock what you believe, don't witness to them. They are pigs. In God's eyes, they are but pigs. They make themselves something less than human. 
the demons go into the pigs. And the pigs go off the cliff into the lake. Those who reject the gospel go to the lake of fire with the demons. You understand? Go to the place prepared for Satan and his angels. Hell was not made for people. It was made for Satan and his demons. Hell was not made for people. It was not created for people to go there. God doesn't want anybody to go there, contrary to what Calvinism teaches. God wants nobody to go there. However, those who reject the gospel go to the place prepared for Satan and his angels. You follow Jesus or you follow Satan. Ultimately, you're either going to go where Jesus is going to go or you're going to go where Satan is going to go. That's why the swine went into the lake with the demons. People think they're so clever. They think they're so smart. Darwinists, Muslims, those who reject and mock the true gospel. Atheists think they're clever. They think they're wise. Nobody's going to tell me. Nobody's going to manipulate me. They're already being manipulated by the demonic, and they don't even know it. The second death is separation from God eternally. Physical death, the material part of man, separates from his immaterial. Spiritual death is separation from God in time. In clock. Eternal death is separation from God in eternity. Okay. So we did ask those to be put off because of the tape. Jesus came to reverse these two. Once these two are reversed, this one gets reversed automatically. Let's understand the relationship between death and the work of Christ. This eternal death, or the second death, is what we read about in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. It's what we read about in Jude 13. It's permanent. Eternal death or the second death is the result of not believing in Jesus Christ. It's the result of not believing in Jesus Christ. Physical death and spiritual death are the result of sin. Eternal death is the result of not accepting God's provision for sin. Concerning death and the work of Christ, we have to look at two things. There's two kinds of resurrection. Lazarus died and came back. The widow's son in the days of Elijah died and came back. That is one kind of resurrection. That's a temporary resurrection. God can and does sometimes resurrect people temporarily. He can send people back from the dead. He did it in the Bible, and without doubt it can happen today. Now, a lot of what you see today is nonsense. That thing with Reinhard Bunke was total nonsense. The guy that Reinhard Bunke said, was raised in the dead at a Reinhard Bunke meeting, that guy said Reinhard Bunke was not even present when it happened. The guy himself said Reinhard Bunke wasn't even there. 
he attended a Reinhardt Bunky meeting at some point, but Bunky wasn't even there. As far as the death certificate the guy had, it was signed by a physician who was a family friend. It wasn't even issued by the hospital where the guy supposedly died. And it was issued three days later. Whether or not the guy died, clinically and medically, is a question in itself. There was no police accident report. There was no autopsy report. There was no coroner's report. Whether or not the guy actually died is a question in itself. But even if he did die and come back, what is not a question is Reinhard Bunke had nothing to do with it. Think of it this way. Life, death, eternity. What happened to Lazarus was this. He goes into death, comes out. What happens to a believer who dies? Is this? What happened to Jesus was this. And then this. But then when that happens, back again. Millennial reign, and we go with him. Okay. Two kinds of resurrection. Let's continue. The death that Jesus died. We do not taste death because he tasted it for us. As we said last night, it's like eating something tasteless. It doesn't mean you don't swallow it. It just means you can't taste it. That's all it means. He did it for us. Jesus died two ways. Jesus died a spiritual death and he died a physical death. What the Copeland-Hagen thing is, is it reverses the order. They say that Jesus first died physically, then he died spiritually.